Hello, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. Today, we are talking about breech birth with the wonderful Dr. Elliot Berlin. This is going to be great for anybody who is in a position where they are aware or have maybe had a previous experience of breech babies. So, enjoy. Hey, mama, I'm sending you wonderful pregnancy vibes. It's time for you to guide you through. Let's take some time for you. It's pregnancy with Physio Laura. Hello, mamas, and welcome back to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast. I have not covered this topic yet in the entire time I've been podcasting, which is really quite disappointing because it is really interesting and it affects a fair number of women. And it's a topic I truthfully didn't know a lot about because. It didn't affect me personally. And so naturally, I think we research the things we're very interested in. So I've done a lot of research in things like, say, VBACs, but never breech birth. Now, I wanted to get Dr. Elliot Berlin on the podcast because he has taken a real special interest in this area and he has now helped so many women navigate all of their options and all of the information when it comes to breech birth. So he is my first male American doula and chiropractor, and you can find him over on social media at Dr. Berlin. He has done some incredible work. He has a really interesting documentary on breech birth called Heads Up, The Disappearing Act of Vaginal Breech Birth. So I definitely recommend you go and check him out. If this is interesting to you, I assume if you've clicked on this podcast that you either suspect you may have a breech baby, you've been told you have a breech baby, or maybe you've previously had a breech baby and you're trying to work out what's the go with breech? I found this topic really interesting because there's a lot of fear when it comes to breach and there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lot of unknown and we really unpack why your baby might be breached in the first place, what your options are to help move your baby and maybe help them in a different position and if you are still breached by full term, what your options are then because a lot of women aren't actually presented with options. After this interview, I did a little call out on social media to my Australian audience to say, hey, what's go with breach in Australia? Because truthfully, I'm ignorant. Like I said, it's not really a topic I've researched. And I was really saddened, but also unfortunately not surprised that midwives, women like patients, women giving birth, Pretty much 99% of women were saying I was told my only options were to have a cesarean section, which is, oh, it breaks my heart because that's not true. That's not true at all. That is not your only option. There are many options to give birth and cesarean section is not your only option. So I really hope that for those women who think that's their only option or don't understand why Many places are only offering cesarean sections. What all the other options are, please listen to this episode. As always, let me know at Physio Laura what you thought about this episode. And maybe if you've had an empowering breach birth story, I'd love to hear from you because we don't hear much of them. And I think it's really beautiful if we can hear more, find out who's actually allowing the practice of vaginal breach birth to happen, who's having these experiences because they exist. It's just that we've interpreted research in a really interesting way to now make sure that they're phased out. And the more something phased out, the more niche it becomes and the more scary it becomes because it's in the minorities. Before I wrap this up and get straight into this interview, my Pregnancy Posse membership, which I'm sure many of you heard about, but if not, I run an online membership for pregnant women from 
as soon as you pee on a stick and find out you're pregnant all the way through to 40 weeks is closing. So I have made the decision to close the pregnancy posse down because I really want to focus on baby number four and I've decided to close it down. I don't know if it will open and if it did reopen, I don't know when that would be. So this may be the last opportunity for you to ever jump inside the posse as it looks right now. So I just wanted to put it out there. If you do want to join the Pregnancy Posse membership, we have a beautiful community of women. There are Q&As that you can look back on. There's over a hundred of them. There's a library of weekly workouts, pelvic floor reminders, how to manage your back pain, how to have an active birth, an entire birth class in there. All this amazing information. We've had thousands of women go through the program and the doors are closing. So I will put an official date out, but it will likely be over the next fortnight. So if you did want to join the posse, the car is still open. You are more than welcome to, but it will be closing. So I just want to give anyone the opportunity to do so if you feel called to. But let's jump into this episode. It is going to be amazing. I know you're going to love it. Enjoy. Okay. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Elliot Berlin. You are ticking a few of the first boxes for me on this podcast. You are the first male doula, you are the first chiropractor that I had, and you are going to be the first person speaking to the topic of breech birth. So there's a lot of pressure wow. on this interview. No pressure. <laughs> okay, fine. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> no, thank you for joining us. You you have your finger in so many pies right now, and I really appreciate the work that you do in the world, the Informed Pregnancy podcast and all of the streaming services with your documentaries and everything that I will link to in the show notes to, you know, really get a positive message out there about birth and choices and women feeling empowered. So yeah, thank you for the work that you do. Oh, thank you, Laura. We're, I feel like we're both pieces of the same puzzle. Yeah, for sure. Now I want to start with breech birth. This is a topic I've not covered before. It is obviously niche to a small part of the pregnant population, but the women that are affected by breech birth and what does that mean really seem to have a lot of confusion around this topic. When I put a call out to my audience to say, hey, what do you want to know about breech birth? I've got an interview coming up. I was bombarded with questions, like so many questions, which I've weaved into this podcast outline. So I'm quite confident that we're going to cover all of the bases that you need to know about breech birth today. But I'd like to start with, first of all, how did you end up in this little niche area of pregnancy and birth. What interests you about breech birth and how did you end up working in this area? If we go back to the beginning dateline, May 13th, 1974, I joined the world butt first. <laughs> and back then nobody cared. I came out, I had a natural birth. And I, I don't know if that sparked my interest in breech or not. My brother was also breech. And I think it, it, what's interesting is I've now met a whole bunch of providers, like obstetricians who still attend breech birth, who were breech babies themselves. I, I don't know if there's a correlation or not, but once I got involved, I, I come from a very medical background. I, I, when I was seven years old, I saw this CPR class happening and I, they told me you could use your body to be somebody else's heart and lungs until advanced medical care can arrive. And my mind was blown. I'm like, I have to do that. I have to do something with healthcare. I want to help people with my body. And so I took like, as soon as I could CPR first aid, responding to emergencies when I was 17, emergency medical training. When I was 18, working in ambulances and emergency rooms. When I was 19, pre-med in college. And then I took a Briggs screeching halt because my father suddenly passed away pretty young. He was 48. And part of it was due to a medical mix-up. And so... I just 
I finished pre-med, but I was also like a speech and drama major. And then I took a year off to study. How do I do healthcare, but not necessarily be involved in the drugs and surgery side of things? And um, I, I still respect drugs and surgery. I think they're incredible, but the right time and right place for everything. I didn't want to be on that side of the healthcare spectrum. I fell in love with chiropractic and massage as a combination. I went to school separately for both with the intention of smushing them together. And that's what I did. And my wife at the same time was training to be a psychologist. And when we were done with grad school, we thought, hey, let's have a baby. And we tried and no baby came. And then we did three years of intense fertility struggles and still no baby. And they gave up on us. They're like, we don't have anything else to offer you. We don't get it, but we don't think you'll ever have a baby together. They'll find another alternative pathway to parenthood. And so we were just devastated and we were in our 20s. And we just said, you know what, we're so broken and broke that we need to take care of ourselves. And that's just what we did. We took care of our relationship, our physical health, spiritual health, emotional health. Then we moved to Los Angeles and we were feeling pretty good and we were starting to make some money. And we said, hey, maybe we should explore that alternative pathway to parenthood. And the next thing, we're pregnant. And every two years after that, boom, another baby. And so we're very blessed with four beautiful, healthy children. And when we started our practice together, mind and body, we had this idea, this goal of general health and wellness, but an eye on boosting natural fertility and helping people maximize what they've got. You can't overcome everything that way, but you can definitely put the body in a more fertility favorable mode of operation. And the first couple of years, the first year, really, we already had a couple of pregnancies come through that program. And then after that, it just snowballed every year, more and more babies, which is how we both got involved in perinatal care to begin with. Mm. Reach babies is just something that would come into the office again and again. As you mentioned, only a small percentage of babies end up reach at birth. But when you start worrying about breach, maybe around 32 or 33 weeks in a first pregnancy, that's about 10% of babies. Here in the United States, we have around 4 million live births a year. That's 400,000 people a year that have to potentially think about breach. So it affects a lot of people, even though only about a third of those will end up breach at the end. Um, and so the what do I do about breach? What do I do about breach? And in the 1970s, there was a chiropractor, Dr. Larry Webster, who he it boggled his mind. Like, how come sometimes some people have babies that are breached? Clearly they generally go head down because if you look at the statistics at in a first pregnancy at 28 weeks, about half the babies are breech. And then all of a sudden, as they start to run out of space, four weeks later at 32 weeks, only about 10% are breech. And then at the end, only about 3% are breech. So it seems like they want to get head down. And then you just mm. like, how come some of them don't get head on or can't get head down? And I think that the thinking was sometimes there's structural things like the cord could be shorter in the way, the placenta could be in the way, the uterus could have a variant shape that's not conducive for head down, the fluid could be on the higher side or lower side, but also functionally, the body sometimes is not set up for accommodating the baby's positional changes, right? If everything at the end of pregnancy, you're body's trying to make your musculoskeletal system loose, relaxed, and open hormonally. And sometimes it's just not. It's stiff, tight, and rigid from things that have happened in life or different ways that they've become that way, different types of stress on them, physical stress, emotional stress, and sometimes chemical stress. And what we can do chiropractically and also with what I do with massage, we can loosen up and restore better 
functionality to the muscles and other soft tissue, tendons, fascia, and to the bones where they come together to form joints. And we can make them more conducive, let's say, to a baby wanting to come head down, like a better invitation. Hey, this is an open, relaxed space. And as the baby's trying to move, if you have a more functional musculoskeletal system, your body should be better poised to accommodate or even facilitate those movements rather than resisting them. Piggybacking off the work of Dr. Webster, he didn't do it as a breach turning technique. He did it as a pelvic correction technique. And such as notably, oftentimes after having the correction, babies that were breached would end up not in the moment, but would end up soon after head down. And mm. so people would come in to me as a chiropractor and be like, tell me about this Webster technique. And that was my entry into working with breech babies. But bigger than that, it's boggled my mind. And also I got a lot of questions about how come we don't deliver breech babies vaginally anymore? What if my baby stays breech? Why do I have to have a C-section? Mm. And that just set me on a journey of exploration yeah. and everything after that's where we ended up making a documentary about it and doing all this media to, to help bring the information to people who need the information to make informed choices. 100%. I think that's a really interesting journey. I love hearing how people get into the areas they get into and it's just following a breadcrumb after a breadcrumb. And often it is your patients or your people coming to you with the problem first, and then it becomes your thing that you can't not follow. Women coming to you and saying, hey, what about breach? What about breach? And then you go, I guess I got to help upskill and learn about this because everyone's coming to me right now. So I think that's a really interesting way and a really great way to get into it. So I love hearing that journey that you've been through. Now we will talk later on in this episode about birth for breech babies and all the issues that come up with that. But I want to just go back to the positioning piece because I know this is a lot of the questions women have is, but why are they breech? And I think you've covered that really well. It sounds to me like you're saying there are placental cord issues that can happen, which means that baby gets into that position because there might be a reason with the cord or the placenta, but there is also this other factor that we can manipulate, which is pelvis and muscles and fascia. So when women are falling pregnant, because I know this is a big thing that comes up, particularly if you've had a breech baby in the past and they're worried about it happening again, what sort of proactive things can women be doing throughout their pregnancy to optimize the best pelvic position for their baby to be head first and to be in the optimal position for birth? What sort of things can they do proactively? And then we'll talk about some things that they can do when they do discover they may have breech birth. Sure. One thing is to keep in mind, breach is generally not considered a recurring event. Interesting. And so I've been practicing for about 20 years, pre and postnatal, all day and all night. And I've only got a handful of clients. I, I see several people with breech babies every day, every day. And I've only seen a handful have recurring breach. Interesting. And, I would have thought that that's really interesting to note because I, I imagine a lot of women are anxious for second and third babies if they've had breach in the past. So there's no evidence to suggest you're at higher chance of having breach position. I think maybe just a tiny bit, but really even a smaller number is people who are breaching twice or more recurring breach. And we don't know why, you know, when you have the variant uterine shape, normally typically a uterus is rounded on the top. And if there's an indentation at the top that kind of creates a little heart shape, then sometimes it's not conducive for the baby to be head down. Shape seems to be a big part of 
what signals a baby to go head down when they start to run out of space. So in that heart-shaped uterus, it's pretty common for the head to be on one side under the rib cage, the bum to be down, and the legs to be up on the other side. And they have a hard time getting past that, that septum that sticks down. Mm-hmm. So with a uterus like that, yes, it's generally going to be a much higher risk of having recurring breech babies. But outside of that, it's usually just fluky. A baby gets too big and hasn't turned head down yet, or something's just the way the placenta is right in their face, they can't move by it, or the placenta is very high and the cord is short and they can't really move away from it. Those kind of things really just vary from pregnancy to pregnancy and don't cause the recurrence. Now, on the functional side, it could be, it could also be a setup for recurring breach. So I find just in practice that if the pelvis is a combination of tight and strong, then it creates a rigid environment. And sometimes that's fine. The baby just lines up with the runway perfectly and they have great births because of all that strength and endurance. But if the baby's not quite lined up with the runway, I, my sense is they have a harder time getting there in that rigid environment. And those births can go on for a very long time. And sometimes they don't position well. Sometimes they don't get head down or sometimes they don't get off the spine, their posterior. And so something that if you know you kind of like an athletic-y tight pelvis, then something you can do proactively is before you get pregnant again, get in there and do some deep tissue on the core muscles, the hip flexors, the low back glutes piriformis, work everything out so it's not so tight. Strong is amazing, but strong and not tight is amazing. It's actually the best. So sometimes I'll see somebody be very strong and tight, and I'm nervous to go to that birth as a supporter because I feel like I'm going to be there for a long time. I can't give people strength, but I can take away tension. And the that combination of strong and not tight seems to be like the best setup for birth, the benefits of the strength without the downsides of being too tight. That's one thing you could do beforehand. And then during the pregnancy, I would say, if you're doing all these strengthening, tightening, toning exercises, Somewhere, maybe around 32 weeks, start to swap some of that out, not so much tightening and toning, and add in more stretching, opening, releasing, yoga-like exercise. And then as you get closer and closer to the end, keep shifting over. And that could be something that if there's a functional element of too much tension, that you could mitigate that in that way. Mm, I love that. I think that's really helpful because women want to be proactive and they want to have things that they can do at home that they can help to manipulate the outcome to be favorable for them. So if they know that there's stretches or yoga moves or opening exercises they can be doing or you know, release work themselves or finding a good practitioner, I think we can give women the tools to empower them rather than them feeling like passive players in this outcome. I think that's so important because then women go, yes, I get to empower myself towards the journey that I want to go on. I don't just have to sit back and go, oh, I had a breech birth last time or there's nothing I can do about it this time and throw their hands up in the air. I think women are really seeking these answers. I would recommend this for anybody, even if you're in your first pregnancy. And yeah. towards the end, there, I mean, there are a lot, there's positional exercises you can do, like the spinning babies exercises, and there are things you can have done to you. Like you could get massage and or chiropractic or other modalities that help restore normal function, length, tone to the muscles and bones. Yeah, no, I think that's really important because 
it isn't just for women who have had a history of breach or who know they have a breach baby. It's definitely for all women because like you said, there's lots of different positions babies can get themselves into, which may not be the quote unquote ideal positions. And just being able to release your pelvis is always helpful if you've got extra tension or rigidity that you don't need there that you're holding on to. It's really helpful to release that. So I love that. So this 32-week mark seems to be the magic place for women to be thinking about baby's position. And this is the time for concern if baby is not in the right position. Is this because of the statistics you shared before about the likelihood of babies getting in the right position from then on? Is that why? What happens at 32 weeks that makes this an important milestone? That's a good question. For me, it's, I always say check for breach at 32 weeks because at this point on your first pregnancy, 90% of babies are head down. You'd like to be in that group. If you aren't, it's not a time to panic. It's a time to just be aware. But if you're not aware until 37 weeks, there's very little you can do at that point, right? There's a lot less you can do. So I like to check for breach at 32 weeks because most babies are head down. And if yours isn't, there are things you can start doing proactively, like the things we discussed. There's also an acupuncture technique with the moxibustion where they, instead of sticking needles, they burn an herbal stick called moxa at the points that correlate to the uterus. And that kind of generates a natural movement in the womb. And sometimes people do both. The chiropractic and massage creates a more functional space. The Chinese medicine creates more natural movement in that space. If no, at 32 weeks, then you have a bunch of time to react. You have time to stop doing so much strengthening, tightening, toning, time to do the positional exercises, the stretching, releasing, and opening exercises. But a lot of times here in the U.S. anyway, they don't really check until 36 weeks. And primarily the reason for that is because medically speaking, there's nothing they can do about breach until 37 weeks. So in their minds, A, it's maybe those babies will turn anyway, which is true. That's why it's not a panicky time. If you have 10 babies out of 100, 10% that are breached at 32 weeks and only three or four out of 100 at birth, then more than half the babies that are breached at 32 weeks will turn and just under half of them will stay breached. It's just that you can do things that kind of push your odds of being in that group that do turn versus the group that don't turn. I think that's really important to know. I love statistics because I think it often actually helps women to relax when they truly know What are the chances? Because sometimes just being told breach can be really overwhelming. But if you hear those stats, you're like, oh, there's time. And like you said, over half of those babies from 32 to full term are still turning. So there's an element of like just exhale and it may happen on its own. And if not, there's all these things that you can do to try and change that outcome anyway. So You speak about relaxing the pelvis, doing your pyro and massage techniques together and just helping to let go of any extra tension women are holding. And we know this is important. Like I recently did a physiotherapy update and there's some really strong evidence coming out now related to high tone pelvic floor muscles and obstructed labors or labors that are longer pushing phases that are longer than two hours. And so there's quite this correlation between muscular rigidity and how that affects your laboring. So we know the importance of being able to relax your pelvic floor, being able to relax all these muscles. Speak to, if you can, why you're not trying to change baby's position. Because I do think a lot of people are thinking that you need to manipulate the baby to move around, but you're talking quite the opposite. You're talking more pelvis and environment. Can you speak to that? And then can we shift into ECVs and talk about how they are different to the approach you're going for? Or manipulating the baby is outside my scope of practice. And when it's done here, 
generally by medical doctor, it's done at 37 weeks because it does carry some risk with it, which we can talk about when we get to ECV. And 37 weeks is term. At that point, the baby wouldn't be considered premature anymore. So if the baby would need to be born as a result of the procedure, then at least you're not delivering a preemie. In terms of what I'm doing, I'm working strictly on the functional side of things. The mother's environment, the mother's body is the baby's environment. And to the extent that, and we work on the premise that babies want to be head down at the end of pregnancy, either unless they don't want to, or they're not able to. And if they don't want to, it's, it, there's a reason for it. And sometimes we don't know what the reason is. And sometimes it's just the environment's too stiff, tight, and rigid. It's, there's more room underneath the rib cage. So the baby will go up there and stick their head over there. So if we can change that and help the baby be invited and have a more functional environment to turn naturally, that's a lot better in my mind than trying to push them and force them into place. If it doesn't happen, then by 37 weeks here, they would have to choose whether or not they want to do an external version and manipulate the baby into place. Mm. And look, that makes a ECB, lot of sense to me because I think it's like giving the baby all the options to turn if they choose to, but then also that element of trusting that if it hasn't turned, like you said, it's for a reason. And you may not know that reason, which can be really frustrating for people who like to know why and whatnot and be in control. But I just, I like that approach. I think it's really healthy for those women who I know get really anxious about this. So it's here are the tools of all the things that you can do and they're in your control. And then there's an element of, okay, we've done everything now and you're 37 weeks and this is how baby's positioned and we need to trust that's for a reason. You've got to say 37 weeks, You your baby is still breech, whether you've known about it before or whether it's maybe the first time you've heard this. And now you're being presented with options. So can you explain to us what an ECV is? What does it stand for? And the pros and cons, the risks, the safety, all of the things that you're aware of when it comes to ECV, for those women who are having to take that information on now and make a decision about whether this might be a good option or not for them. Sure. You get to 37 weeks, you still should have a few options. One option is to keep doing the natural things that you are doing. And one option is to do this procedure, the external cephalic version. And there's two versions of it, really a 37 week and a 39 week. And I'll explain the difference. And then if not, you could schedule a cesarean or in a handful of places, you have the opportunity to schedule a, not to schedule, but just to wait for yourself to go into labor with your breech baby. So in terms of the ECV, it stands for external cephalic version. It means external. It's done through the belly, not internally. And cephalic is the head, the cephalic, the baby's head version. We're turning it from being up to down. And usually it's done in a medical facility. Here in the U.S., they like to give the drug terbutaline, which relaxes the uterus. And uh, sometimes they'll do it with an epidural. Some doctors prefer that. Some leave it up to the patient. Some prefer not to do it with an epidural. I think there are pros and cons on both sides of that. With the epidural, obviously, you don't feel anything or you feel very little. So you won't resist as much. And I think that's the logic for... Maybe it has better success rates, but I don't know that there's any data to back that up. If it were to turn into a necessary cesarean, then you already have the epidural in place. So that could be helpful is another logic for doing it. The person here that I, I know, the obstetrician does the most of them and is also seemingly the most successful with it. He doesn't really like the epidural because he feels if you feel with all your gazillion sensors in there that something is too much, then we should stop. And if you can't 
tell, then we lose that indicator. Also, mm -hmm. it's generally a pretty quick procedure. They'll monitor the baby, see what position the baby's in, make sure the baby's doing well with the vitals, and to try. They try to physically, whatever's stuck in the pelvis, if it's the baby's bum or the feet, they try pushing it up out of the pelvis and rotating. Let's say it's bum down, head up. They push the bum in one direction and the head in the other direction mm -hmm. for just a little bit, 30 or 60 seconds. If it doesn't work, they stop. They re-ultrasound. They reevaluate the baby, make sure the baby's still happy as can be. They might try in the other direction. And if it still doesn't work, maybe they'll try a third time in whichever direction seemed like it was going to be the closest to work. And after that, I don't really see them doing much more. We tried mm -hmm. and they stopped. So it doesn't really take that long, generally speaking. The actual intensity of the procedure, it doesn't go on very long. And that's another reason sometimes people are recommending not doing the epidural with all the things that come along when it was sticking a needle into your fecal sac right by your spinal cord and the risks that come with that. It's a personal choice, I think, like everything else, but there are some of the pros and cons of that. And the ECV itself is a personal choice. Sometimes people want to do it and it's a great choice. And sometimes people don't want to do it. I don't think there's a wrong choice there. 39 week version. Yeah. Sorry. You know, I was just going to say, no, actually carry on with the 39 week version. And I'll come back to it at the end. A 39 week protocol that I see is where, uh, they'll either do it again if it didn't work the first time, or some people just prefer to wait to 39 weeks. You go to the hospital essentially for a scheduled cesarean breech birth. After you're all prepped and numb and ready for surgery, they will try to turn the baby. If the baby turns, they induce. And if the baby doesn't turn, they proceed with the cesarean birth. Now, I've also seen people, because it should be, again, I think your choice. I've seen people actually do the 39-week version, the baby turns, and they say, I'm going home. Take all this stuff out of me. I'm waiting until I go into labor. That that could be an option too, although I don't think it's one that the medical establishment condones very often. Yeah, this is so interesting. I have quite a few questions, but obviously there's risk involved. So, so when you're saying that they're using, say, the epidural for the 37-week or the 39-week ECV in case they need to rush you off for a Caesar, there's obviously some sort of risk involved with the baby not enjoying that procedure or the baby getting distressed or whatnot, I imagine. Is that why they're prepping you for a potential emergency cesarean case? Yeah. So the things that, that can potentially go wrong, your water could break. And if the baby ends up head down, you might have the option to induce there. No, no big emergency, just an induction. If you're still breech, very few places left where you can deliver that baby vaginally, although some. And another thing that could happen is the placenta could become traumatized, partially or completely pulled off the wall, for example, and that can present more of an emergency. And also sometimes the baby's heart rate could just drop and not immediately recover, and that can become a quick emergency cesarean. So those are some of the complications that could happen. I think they're extremely rare. Most of the doctors who I talk to who do a lot of external cephalic version don't see them very often. And when they do happen, they say they're in the order of less severity to most. So water breaking, placenta trauma, and emergency C for the baby's heart rate. Interesting. And then what, do you, are you aware of the data or the evidence for success rates of ECV? So how many of those procedures are then turning babies? And I'm curious to know how, if that transfers into the next potential four weeks 
are they staying head down or are they flipping again? I'd be really interested to know if you know anything about the stats on that. So there are some published stats, and then I have anecdotal data to add to that. On the published stats on a first pregnancy, the success rate of a 37-week ECV is around 40 to 50%. Now, this is really important because, like I said, there's no right or wrong choice. I imagine the risk of something going wrong is down like 1% in that neighborhood, but I don't have a statistic on that. The the reason that's important is because some people say, hey, 40 to 50% chance, I'm definitely going to, I'm going to try. I got a one in two that's going to work. And then somebody else will say, I'm definitely not going through that for a less than 50% chance that the baby's going to turn. So that's the stat on a first time pregnancy. Now, the anecdotal that I want to add to that is I think there are factors, I know there are factors that make an individual case more or less likely to succeed where I would bet more or less than 40 to 50%. So for example, if a baby is head down in the third trimester, particularly after 30 weeks, and then they turn, those babies in my mind are easier to get back head down. They were head down recently and they turned for some reason, they're easier to get back head down. If the amniotic fluid level is generous within the normal range, but generous, those babies tend to flip-flop. So if the fluids on the generous side in the normal range, and there's nothing particularly wedged in the pelvis, the feet or the butt is not deep down into the bony area of the pelvis. I give it a great chance of turning, especially some of them just flip-flop a lot at the end of pregnancy because they don't run out of space. They just keep moving around like they're 28 weeks. The Those are the ones though that after you turn them, you're curious if they're going to stay. Those are more likely to flip back afterwards. And by the way, to keep flipping, go down breach. And the placenta being in the front of the uterus, on the anterior placenta, appears to me to be a factor, not an absolute factor. A lot of people come in with a frontal placenta and the babies just turn with the natural stuff or are able to turn with an ECV. But seemingly about two-thirds of the ones that come through our office that don't turn have that placenta in the front. And then there's what we talked about earlier, the shape of the uterus. If you have a variation in the shape of the uterus, or if you have fibroids that might change the shape of the uterus, those things also might take away. And then there's actually something else, which I think is a long torso. Someone with a long torso has a bit more space in there, probably has a better chance. Now that's in a first pregnancy. If you had a head down baby and now you're subsequently pregnant and you have a breech baby, you also have a better chance of success with an ECV than the original 40 to 50%. So I, hopefully that will help people because I think some people hear, oh, 40 to 50%, I'm not going to try, but at least look at your own factors. If you're very tall, it's your third pregnancy, you already had two head down babies. This baby was head down three weeks ago when your fluid's good and your placenta's in the back, I would bet my last dollar that baby could be turned if it doesn't turn naturally. Still doesn't mean you have to take that risk. That's always your choice, but not all breaches are created equal. I think that's a really important point you make about informed choice and risk and what what risk means to you because it really is unique to the individual because like you said, someone might hear a 40 to 50% stat and they might take it in the affirmative and somebody else might hear that and go, yeah, no way, I'm not going to, that's not going to work out for me. So it's really important that you do assess the risk for yourself and work out what your risk appetite is and there's so many factors that are going to be unique to you 
So 40 to 50% chance of this working, again, may mean completely different things to different women. So I think it's really important that you take that on board. I like that you mentioned that. So I feel like women now have a really good understanding of why you might have a breech baby, all the proactive things you can do to really help your pelvis be as mobile and supple as possible, all of the other procedures that might be available to you, the ECV, you mentioned the moxibustin, is that how we call it? A moxibustion, like combustion is the burning of the moxistic. Yes. So these are some options. So maybe this woman now is 39, 40 weeks pregnant and has a breech baby. Let's talk about options. So this was obviously one of the biggest questions coming through was, why is there an issue with vaginal breech birth? Why are people not practicing this? Why am I offered a cesarean? What is the risk with having a vaginal breech birth? Women have no idea by the sounds of it about what is actually risky about this. Why can't we do this? Please tell me. So let's start there with what options are often going to be presented to you and why? Well, if you're still breech at the very end, the option around the world, seemingly, that's pretty much the only option offered to most people is a cesarean breech birth. And this actually doesn't date back all that far. It goes to around the year 2001. Now, breech birth vaginally was declining before this happened, but really plateaued down to next to zero after a study came out in 2001 in the Lancet Journal called the Term Breach Trial. And I think it was a fair, what happened was, you go back a hundred years ago, we did cesarean to save lives, but they were very risky. And before that we did cesarean, originally they would just do them, if a pregnant woman died, they would cut her open and see if they could save the baby. Um, then, and then for a long time, if you had to do a cesarean, it was pretty much you would save the baby and lose the mother. And even when cesarean got safer, we would save the baby and mother and lose the uterus. Things have come a very long way. We have improved and nearly perfected those techniques. And the cesarean birth is very reliable, very safe, and very easy to do now. And it's a medical marvel that I'm grateful that we have. But as it got safer and safer, we started to logically ask the question, who would be a better candidate for a cesarean birth than a vaginal birth? An example, let's say the placenta is completely covering the cervix, and the only way the baby can get out vaginally is to smash through that placenta. Placenta previa, uh, I don't know anybody who doesn't agree, you're better off having a cesarean birth. The risk is too high to do a vaginal birth in that scenario. And there's, over time, more and more things that we apply that question to. The research group that did this study in 2001, was looking at breach. And there are two things that can really go wrong with a breech birth that don't happen with a head down baby vaginally. One is the entire baby can come out, but the head gets stuck. So head entrapment, and that's a pretty dangerous complication. The baby needs, is exposed to oxygen, it's trying to breathe and you can't get the head out. It can be quite traumatizing for them. And the other one is umbilical cord prolapse. So if the first thing that comes through, if the cervix is a door that is an opening between the womb and the birth canal, if the first thing through the door is the umbilical cord and then the baby comes through, the baby's weight can compress the umbilical cord and block off all the life-saving nutrients that the baby needs to survive. 
So those are two potentially serious complications that can happen when you deliver breech babies vaginally that don't happen, A, with head-down babies, don't typically happen with head-down babies, and B, don't happen with cesarean birth. Maybe it's better for all breech babies to born, be born by cesarean, and that's what the study was looking at. They took a bunch of women who were breech, and they said they all agreed to participate in the trial, and some were designated to deliver vaginally and some by cesarean. And at the end, they looked at the data, and the conclusion was that breech babies did better statistically significantly, but not by much, when they were born by cesarean than when they were born vaginally. Well, based on that study, several countries immediately made the recommendation that all breech babies be born by planned cesarean at 39 weeks so that they don't go into labor ideally. And they just have a cesarean with no labor. Now, I generally think historically we learn that when you have one study, especially with a small finding, that you don't take away an option based on that study. It just doesn't work out that great. And it's rash. It's a rash thing to do. And But that's what happened. Two years later, the same group of researchers in Canada, McGill University, Dr. Mary Hanna and colleagues, looked at the two-year-olds from the original study, and they found no long-term difference in health. So immediately after birth, the babies that were born by cesarean looked better. Two years later, no long-term difference in health. And immediately, oh my goodness, why did we take away that option? Mm -hmm. And then two years later, there's this researcher, his name is Dr. Glazerman. He pulled apart the methods of the study, and his basic conclusion was that the original conclusion of the term breach trial should be reversed, because, or withdrawn at least, because you can't correlate things that were in the study with other settings. For example, the study was done in 28 countries. Some of them did not have imaging. Some of them did not have NICU units. Some of them did not have skilled practitioners in breech birth. They did not really do selection as to which breech babies and mommies were better candidates for vaginal birth and which ones were not such good candidates. And how do you take that and translate it to, let's say, here in Los Angeles, where we have doctors who do breech birth all the time, they have training and experience with it, they do selective delivery, they look for which candidates are better and safer and which ones are more likely to have those complications that we talked about. They do have a NICU in case something does go come up where the babies can get vital care right after they're born. You can't take that original finding and apply it here because the circumstances are so different. And then there were other issues with the study also with babies that had congenital issues that were not related to mode of delivery that should have been removed and maybe they weren't removed. At the end of the day, it's still a question mark. And just like when it comes to the ECV, not all breech babies are equal. When it comes to breech birth, not all babies are equal. Everybody who I know that attends breech birth, the midwives and obstetricians, they have category of risk that you need to meet in order for them to feel comfortable attending your breech birth. For example, generally when the butt is down, that blocks the cervix just like a head would. If a butt is engaged down against the cervix, the cord shouldn't come through. You don't, you mitigate that risk of umbilical cord prolapse. If a foot is down, on the other hand, that maybe doesn't block the cervix and the cord could come through. And also when the cervix is just open partially, three, four, five centimeters, that foot might start to slide through, but the, there's no way the head will be able to get through there. Some of the practitioners 
are comfortable with babies that are, we're guesstimating up to a certain weight, maybe nine pounds. Some are looking for the head not to be extended back. When it's stuck in extension like that, a better chance of getting stuck on the pubic bone on the way out. And of course, somebody who's already had vaginal birth has what they call a proven pelvis. We know a baby can make it from point A to point B without getting stuck. And that increases the likelihood substantially that a breech baby wouldn't get stuck either. And so there's just, there's factors to consider. In my mind, the whole concept of informed pregnancy, everything we stand for is only you could make the choice. We are supposed to give you the best data we have and as we know it and the pros and cons, the risks and benefits, and you make a choice and you're the one who has to give birth to that baby. You're the one who has to live with the consequences of the birth of that baby. And everybody, risk is so subjective. And two people, like we said before, will look at the same risk factors. And one's like, I definitely want to do that. And one might be, I definitely don't. I just recently had a patient who, who had a, this wasn't in terms of breach, but in terms of feedback, she had a cesarean with her first, but she's hoping to have five or six kids. So the weight of the decision on whether to do a repeat cesarean with the second or to go for a vaginal birth after cesarean is much different from her than somebody who's only, let's say, planning to have two kids. Mm, exactly right. And that's what we keep coming back to, I think, is this is such a unique thing to each person. I don't think when things are black and white or when things are blanket statements, that's what worries me. So when, you know, you get a research article like this come out in 2001 and then People run with that and make blanket statements like we don't do vaginal breach deliveries anymore. We only do C-sections. It's concerning because like you said, there's so many flaws in research and it's really hard unless it is a completely robust study. But even then, that doesn't mean it applies to all women. It's really hard to then go and make a blanket statement to say it is safest to go and do Caesar. And I think it's really interesting as well in that study. And I haven't read this study, so I don't know the ins and outs of it, but You've got to look at what they're looking at, right? And they're looking at baby outcomes and all these markers, but it sounds like they maybe weren't assessing maternal outcomes. And I always wonder, what are the maternal outcomes from doing cesarean versus a vaginal breech birth? And what are the maternal satisfaction rates and maternal mental health? And there's so many other factors to consider, right? That are not just, is your baby healthier or more alive than another comparison? It's just such a big topic. So I do get worried whenever there's some sort of black and white statement or a blanket policy change after research comes out. And obviously we've seen how much of an effect that's had on breach births now because so many places don't offer that as an option to have a vaginal birth. So I'm wondering for those women, and I know the US is going to be different to Australia, but for those women who have assessed the risks and they've taken all their unique factors into play and they've said, you know what, I actually really want to try a vaginal breach birth. I imagine then the next problem is that there may not be practitioners able to help them. So what like in the US at the do these women then have to go and resource their own obstetricians? Are there midwives doing this? What are the options for those women who then do choose to go down the vaginal birth pathway? That's a good question. So in 2006, it was never against the law. It was in 2001, the recommendation was all breech babies should be born by planned cesarean. It wasn't a law. There were still several doctors and midwives doing it or offering the choice. And the problem is it was 
the training was becoming non-existent. Very few people were choosing to do it. Since the community norm became not to do it, medical students just were never even seeing them. And it's if you see one or two, it's not really enough to get comfortable and get enough experience to learn the different variations of breach and the different ways babies come down and the maneuvers and the special tools that they sometimes use to help deliver breech babies. And after the 2004 Dr. Gleiserman study came out and there were, there was a hard look at the actual risk and benefit. In 2006, the United States changed the recommendation to maybe vaginal breech delivery is a reasonable option if you can still find a skilled provider. And Canada, I know in 2009, did something similar. However, I don't think the numbers have gone up. I think they've continued to decline. And that is because most of the practitioners that I know who deliver breech babies or attend breech birth are ones who were trained long before we stopped teaching breech. And they have a lot of experience and they have a lot of training in it and they're comfortable with it and they're good at it, but they're a dying breed. They're retiring and they're not being replaced. I know a couple of doctors, Dr. Stu Fishbine, I think Dr. Nathan Riley, that are here just on a mission to reteach breech. I know in Germany, there's a big mission to reteach breech, but it's up against, it's up against, it's like a tiny piddling of the providers who want to or are comfortable and, and most of them don't. So here in the United States, it's different state to state, city to city. Even in Los Angeles, we have a couple of doctors that still deliver breech. You go 20 miles out of here and I don't think there's anybody. And midwives used to deliver breech, but a few years back, the state of California took breech birth out of the scope of midwives. So they're no longer allowed to. And that's why it goes state by state. There are some states where midwives are still doing breech birth mm-hmm. and they still pass on that training from generation to generation. But overall, it's tough. If you want to have a breech birth in most cities, you'd have to travel to a provider who does it. Gosh, that makes me so sad. Like, I think it's really hard when there's only a few people really trying to push for something. And especially when you go and take that away from someone, like you were saying with the midwives, oh, that makes me so upset that these people had the ability to do it. And now they're actually not allowed to support that. That's really challenging for those people trying to create change. And it sounds like it's on an individual responsibility level now, as opposed to a systemic, like people trying to train other doctors to deliver breach, it sounds like it's coming from the individual as opposed to the universities or, you know, like from the higher up construct saying, hey, we're going to do breach as part of your training. It sounds like it's more individual. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Here in the United States, for sure. It's a couple of breach warriors that go around. Dr. Stu, I think even has a RV and he goes around from city to city. He has a simulator. He has a whole seminar workshop. He's very, he's delivered a lot of Look, before he passed away, the late Dr. Ronald Wu had delivered somewhere around 20,000 babies, including 500 breech, approximately 500 breech babies. I actually have these doctors in a documentary I made about this called Heads Up, The Disappearing Art of Vaginal Breech Delivery. And it's deliberately short, 34-minute short doc. And it really goes into what we're talking about now, the reasons breech disappeared and maybe why that wasn't the greatest idea to take away the option altogether anyway. And, and some stories of women who either didn't have the option or this couple that does have the option and generously shares their home vaginal breech birth with Dr. Fishbein. And it's just a beautiful thing to watch. You know, 
that. I know that he's out there teaching because I just see people clicking into the documentary from all over the country and all over the world. And he's doing the best he can, but he passionately offered that option to people. And a lot of people took him up on it. And the few that are left that do it are just at 35, 36, 37 weeks, people are calling them every day saying, hey, am I a candidate for this? And mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine, but it's easy to see that if things keep going in this trajectory, it won't be very long before the option's gone altogether. Yeah, that's so hard. And I don't know what, there's no easy solution to it, but it's really hard. I, it puts women in such a pickle, women who are truly informed, women who have assessed the risk for themselves and women who truly want to birth the way they want to birth, but then coming up against all these barriers and these lack of options. And it puts women in a really tricky position. Like I've been in my own similar position with VBAC territory where I've come up against so many barriers with not being able to just I thought it was as simple as, oh, but if I want to birth this way and I understand all the risks and I'm informed, then shouldn't I be able to choose? But it, it's not that simple. So it's a very complex situation and I really feel for women in this. But I think it always it just comes down to being informed, like we were saying before, like fully assessing the risks and understanding what feels safe for you and hopefully finding a really supportive care team and care provider and yeah, I just think it's such a tricky predicament that women are in. And I think I'd really like to now go, I should have done a bit more research before this podcast about how this all sits in Australia at the moment, because I'm truly not very informed on how many hospitals are offering this care and where it's at compared to the US. So I might even do a little bit of a call out and do some research after this to see where the women are at in my country and what barriers they're facing, because it certainly is fading out. Now, you mentioned your Heads Up doco, which I was definitely going to transition to mm -hmm. now. That's amazing. I've watched it myself. It's really worthwhile. I'll put all the links in the show notes for women who do want to watch it. But what inspired you to head down that way? What inspired you to create a documentary around this topic? It was, I'm on this journey with people every day. And I think the last straw for me was I had a patient who had two seven-pound babies, relatively fast, smooth, easy deliveries is how she would put it. And she was pregnant with her third, also measuring around seven pounds. And the baby just turned breech at maybe 32, 33 weeks. And they didn't offer any options. They didn't offer options to try to turn the baby, which I think would have been, again, based on everything I said before, she probably had a great chance of success. And they didn't offer options to deliver breech. And so the only option they gave her was to do a cesarean with that third baby and all the risk factors with it. She was in a perfect frank breech position, baby butt down, wedged into the pelvis, head, legs up. And it just, I was like, what? Like, we, we should be obligated to teach breech and make sure it's an option just for that scenario alone. Like, why did that person, if you look at the term breech trial, you're probably, I'd be shocked if you don't find that for a thousand people in that scenario, that the vaginal breach option was statistically, and not by a little bit, a majority amount, better for both the mother and the baby. And it should still be their choice. After that, I was like, no, this, these stories were just getting to me too much. And so I just sat down to interview people who weren't given the opportunity. And you could see, I think sometimes in the medical system, you get a little focused on zooming in onto the very specific area where things are happening. And that's how allopathic medicine has gone. It used to be, you call the doctor, some somebody comes over on a horse with a 
black bag and inside there was maybe, I don't know, a thermometer and alcohol and aspirin. And the thermometer would tell them if you're going to make it or not. And the alcohol or aspirin would keep you comfortable until it happened. And as things got more improved and more advanced, we had to go to them because the machinery couldn't take it out. And it just became very specialized. Instead of a doctor that takes care of the whole family, there's a doctor for the older people, the younger people, and then even more specialized. I just do livers or hearts or kidneys or bones. And it's not, I just do bones. I only do extremities or I only do fingers or I only do thumbs. And holistic medicine is the exact opposite. We're zooming out and looking at the whole of the organism. And I think holistic practitioners like to use the example. They say, when you step on a dog's tail, it barks. And if you're the medical person looking at the vocal cords and trying to make that barking stop, you're looking in the wrong place because there's still going to be a foot on the dog's tail. I was seeing more of the emotional journey that maybe you don't see when you're focused very much on, on the reproductive organs and how this is going to be, or when you're just focused on the baby, even without the looking back at the mother baby dyad. And I just, I felt somebody needs to see, like people need to see like breach is still a possible option. Babies could be born breach and vaginal and needed to learn why the option was disappearing. And so all that together just made me, I'd never made a film before. I didn't know what I was doing. I was hiring film students, like whenever I can get an interview to just come do one with me. And I learned a whole bunch of things from mistakes that I made. And luckily there were some great people around who were vested in the project for its value for the birth community and just helped me fix it all. And once we put in this beautiful music that we got, it just really became a wonderful film. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people watch it. One of the doctors who was passionate about teaching breach right now was a resident and we were invited to that medical program to show the film and to have a discussion about it and that's where he became passionate about it so i know it's having an impact and, yeah that's uh, amazing that's so great and well done to you for stepping out of your comfort zone and learning a whole new area of <laughs> media and filmmaking and because it's clearly had an impact and you're seeing that what do you think has been the main positive feedback or ripples of change that have happened since you released the documentary? Uh, the main feedback is that so far has been people watch it and learn more and they become more empowered to make a choice. Some people watch the documentary and make the conscious choice to have a cesarean birth with their bridge baby. And I love that. And some people watch the documentary and make the conscious choice to explore the options for vaginal birth with their bridge baby. And I love that. The whole idea is informed choice. You take this information and decide with information what you want to do, what risks you want to take for what benefit. And in many cases, again, locally here in Los Angeles, but throughout the country and throughout the world, really, we get feedback of people who were able to find a provider and have a wonderful breach birth, or maybe they found a provider and then got information that made them realize I'm not the greatest candidate for this, but they were, they were steering the ship. They weren't just being pushed along wherever the, like a hot air balloon, wherever the wind will take you. Mm -hmm. So that's really wonderful feedback. And now just more recently, as people are using it as a tool in the reteach breach movement, I see that providers are becoming a little more warm to the whole organism that is the person who is going to have this baby and who wants to be a part of that decision-making. And maybe it becomes because of that more open to learning the skills to be able to offer that choice. 
If that's the case, bravo to you, because I think that's a really important message is because it's a huge thing. It's a rite of passage. It's transformational. It's a huge event for women. And it's not just a physical thing. It's emotional. It's spiritual. There's such so many elements to it. And I know like what you're saying in allopathic medicine, you are a specialist in that one area, but we need to be able to zoom out and see the whole person and the mother and the baby relationship together. And it it affects women's lives in profound ways, how they give birth. I think it's really important to be able to zoom out and see that whole person. If that's what people are taking from seeing heads up, then I think that's really amazing. And like what you said with informed choice as well, I think it's really amazing if women can watch this and then feel really confident in their decision either way, whether they go down the vaginal birth pathway or they go down the cesarean pathway, but either way, they feel really comfortable and really confident, really supported in their decision. I think, I think that's really amazing. I'm curious to know if you've had any backlash or any criticism or any negative feedback from the documentary. Sure. So I think that there are elements of the medical establishment who are very set in the idea that intervention in this case is the right way to go for everyone. And there are certain practitioners who, at least for themselves, decided I'm not offering that option. I Either, and I think it's genuine. I think they wouldn't want to do that for themselves or their daughter or their anybody else. They feel like it's not a good choice. And so sometimes I get backlash, for example, when someone's, let's say, 37 weeks pregnant with a provider who doesn't offer breech birth, then they see the film and then they go ahead and switch to a provider who does offer breech birth. I think they take it the wrong way. I think they take it as like an insult or we're pulling away a patient, but I see it differently. I see it as as someone who was going along their journey and then realized they need a specialist. And if I was with my GP and a cardiac issue came up and I went to my cardiologist, my GP wouldn't be offended by that. They would probably make the referral with the recommendation. That's how I think a breach should be. I think if you don't offer breach birth as an option, then the right thing to do would be to say, I don't, and here's why I don't. But you should know that there are providers that do. And mm -hmm. if you want to explore that, here's some names even. But I, I don't think it, it works that way. And I, I do. I, it's hard because I think it comes from a genuine place where they think it's not a good idea. And that's why I don't do it. And that's why I'm not going to lead you down that path either mm. with somebody else. And then, of course, anybody who has either attended breech birth as a provider or had a breech birth with complications, those people tend to regret having done the breech birth because it's not the community norm. And there is this data that says maybe it would have been better the other way. And you feel like you went against that and went for the breech birth and something didn't go right and sometimes really went wrong. And I think those people stand passionately against the idea that people are still wanting to educate about breach or offer breach or give that choice to other people. And I get that comes from a really deep emotional space. and. The problem is there's nothing in birth that's 100% risk-free. And no matter what options are in front of you, there are risks. And again, some babies and mommies are better candidates or less good candidates in their scenario. And it's more important to some mommies or babies for one reason or another. And not everybody is, is going to be the same. I, I, I hear the feedback and I, I understand it. And I relate to all the people that feel that way, whether it's a provider who's going to lose a patient over it and do something that provider doesn't think is a great idea 
or whether it's a provider who's attended a birth with a complication or somebody who's had a birth with a complication and they have such negative feelings toward it. I get it. I still think in my heart of hearts that the option should be on the table. Yes, I agree with you. And I think birth is a highly emotionally charged arena and people have seen all sorts of manner of amazing, beautiful moments and also the most tragic and traumatic moments that you could imagine. And I think we all come into it with our own unique biases of what we've seen and the stories we've heard. And, you know, I have compassion for those people as well, because even though I may feel differently to them, I am compassionate to how strongly they would feel because they don't want to see something go bad. They don't want to see something terrible happen that they may have seen in the past and they've created a story that this equals that and they'll, you know, that's their choice. But I think what's important, the message out of this is that you do you and you make the decision that feels right for you and you find the aligned practitioner that is on the same page as that. Because not everybody is, we've all had our own unique lives, our unique journeys, our own stories, and they're not always going to line up with the person that's in your local area or whatever it may be. So I think that's really important message to extract out of everything you've said. Now, I'm so curious to know what's next for you. What's next for you in the breach world? Have you got anything exciting coming up? Have you got any other movies in this, the works or what's next for you in breach? Uh, so in breach, I hand off the torch to those practitioners that are going around trying to reteach breach. I just, I think that's the problem with documentaries in the birth world in general that I found, because we also have one on vaginal birth after cesarean VBAC, is that you make them and then you realize the only thing you know less about making a film is what to do with it once it's there. They tend to come out like you're striking a match with a big impact where a lot of people are interested and there are screenings and there are fundraisers and all sorts of things. And then they just disappear in the, I don't know, webosphere and people don't know about them, have a hard time finding them. And I reached out to other filmmakers. I'm like, how do you get, like, how do you keep it alive? How do you, and it seemed to be a common sentiment that it's hard. It's, there's not a great space for these things. You just um, have to make more. <laughs> we'll make more films. But about six months ago, I launched a platform called Informed Pregnancy Plus. And my mission was to bring all of this visual content together in places where it's really easy to access, mostly worldwide and inexpensive to access. And so. I have my films on there, Heads Up and Trial of Labor. We have iconic films like The Business of Being Born, Orgasmic Birth, The Mama Sherpa's Breast Milk. We have interesting films from Japan, like one called Prenatal Memory, about what babies remember from before they're even born, which I had to watch it twice till it really started to have the full impact on me. And then important films that are not such happy topics like Sick, a film from the UK about hyperemesis gravitarium, that really intense nausea and vomiting of pregnancy that's much different than typical nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. Documentaries on miscarriage, stillbirth, where the conversation needs to be broader and support needs to be more available. And lots of just web series, some that we're producing on our own and some that we're licensing and mind and body so that you could have yoga classes and fitness classes for during and after pregnancy, meditations for the various stages of birth and postpartum, pregnancy, birth and postpartum, workshops like my wife's psychology workshop on how to still like your partner after you have a baby together, which is called the afterbirth plan. And it's all just accessible to everybody at informedpregnancy.tv or apps on Apple, Android, and Roku. 
and anyone can try it for free and get access to pretty much all the content, all the content mm-hmm. for a period of time. And so then it's six bucks a month after that. It's been a lot of work in terms of what's coming next. It's, it's growing that platform, trying to bring more content that we produce, more content that we license, bring back to life some of the oldie but goodies and even the more recently released ones that never found their audience and, and having it all in one place to create a visual informed pregnancy platform. Mm, that's so epic. Well done to you. I know you're a busy man. You were talking to me earlier about how little sleep you get, but all these resources are going to make such an impact on women who are looking for more education and more information. And it's becoming more readily available, which is amazing. So I highly encourage anyone, if you've got a breech baby, definitely go check out the Heads Up doco. And Dr. Berlin said there's a, a million other resources there. So definitely go and check them out. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a real privilege to speak to you on this topic because it's definitely not one, like I said, that we've covered, but it was juicy. There was some really good information in there for women. And I just know that women are going to leave. I like women to leave all my podcasts feeling uplifted and empowered about what they can do next to carry on with an epic pregnancy and birth journey. And I just really feel like they're going to leave going, oh, good. I know now. I understand. And now I can go and take these steps towards whatever journey I want to go on. So I really thank you for that. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, My pleasure, Laura. Thanks for having me and thanks for the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you. (laughs) Hello, mamas. I really hope that anybody in this position is now feeling a little bit more empowered, a little bit more informed, and maybe a little bit more at peace with having a breech baby rather than feeling fearful and unsure and scared because I know many women go into having breech babies, breech births, feeling that way. And I don't think that's how any birth should unfold. I think we should really trust that our babies and our bodies are really powerful and we know what we're doing. And just because this is not the quote unquote normal way to birth and this is a variation of normal does not make this something to be absolutely frightened of. So I really hope that this has helped to reassure anyone who is feeling a little bit scared and needs some assistance. I really hope this has helped. So if you love this episode, if you have any follow-up questions, please jump on over to at PhysioLaura and let me know what you thought about this episode or go and check out Dr. Berlin. He is at Dr. Berlin on social media. And like I said in the intro, he also has an amazing documentary called Heads Up, The Disappearing Act of Vaginal Breach Birth, which I highly encourage you to check out and all of his other amazing work. And he may be able to help put you in touch with somebody local to you who is still supporting women with breech birth. So really hope you love this episode. We have got a few more podcasts left before the podcast is finishing up so that I can have baby number four. So make sure you subscribe to the Pregnancy with Physio Laura podcast so you don't miss out. And remember the Pregnancy Posse will be closing down. That is my online membership program for pregnant women. It has been running for the last like four or five years, we have had thousands of women join this program with amazing feedback to help them not just physically, but mentally during their pregnancy and births. We have weekly workouts, birth preparation, pelvic floor reminders. There's so much in there and it will be closing down so that I can focus on baby number four. So if you're interested in joining, just go to thepregnancyposse.com and you can trial the program for seven days. I will catch you all next week for another amazing episode. Talk to you soon, ladies. Bye.